0: Hello, and welcome to the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast, brought to you by North Carolina Sustainable Energy Association. I'm your host, Ben Stockdale.
1: Hello, Squeaky Clean listeners. I'm Jarvis Arrington, the intern for the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast.
0: Bring in the latest in clean energy right to your ears. And a happy New Year's Eve to everyone. Woohoo! Happy New Year's Eve, everyone. So happy to bring you this special holiday episode for everyone on December 31st.
1: That's right. So Ben, what's the lowdown on this episode?
0: So Jarvis, we are going to be hopping in the time machine and going back to the beginning of this decade, the 2010s. We're going through the highlight reel of the decade, complete with color commentary from a guest who is among the top energy leaders in North Carolina and was a key leader in making North Carolina number two in installed solar nationally. We talk about how clean energy politics evolved over the years and the challenges clean energy faced, especially in 2015. But overall, it was a great decade for clean energy, and I'm so excited to share this episode.
1: And yes, spoiler alert, our guest reveals what he thinks is the single most significant development that helped North Carolina advance its clean energy future. So definitely stay tuned for that part near the end.
0: Yes. And uh, okay, Jarvis, the, we got we to gotta, uh, give the lowdown to our listeners too. How old were you at the beginning of the decade?
1: Beginning of the decade,
0: 2010. I was
1: twelve or thirteen years old, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, 12, I was. i was thinking fifth or sixth grade. So young buck. A young buck. A young buck that that that's a somewhat grown buck now.
0: Did you ever? Did you ever dream that you would be broadcasting your voice into the ethers of the world? You know what's funny?
1: When I was in fourth grade, so probably like 2009, um, I did a little like radio thing, which was very funny Um, Ah, oh there we go i enjoyed it a bunch yeah 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 see how things come full circle wow and look how far
0: you've come definitely
1: well ben what country's getting our squeaky clean shout out today
0: we're saying Paji to our squeaky clean listeners in malaysia specifically kuala lumpur so happy new year to you and thanks for listening
1: yes and our city shout out goes to our neighbors in the mountains We're giving a big squeaky clean shout out to our listeners in Asheville.
0: Yes, we love Asheville. I in particular love Asheville because I'm from Asheville. My family lives in Asheville, and if you are living in Asheville or you have an affinity for the city, go ahead and listen to our episode with Sophie Mullinax of the Blue Horizons project. We talk about Asheville's 100% renewable energy commitment. We go over the public partnership that Duke Energy has with Buncombe County and the city of Asheville, and you get to learn a little bit more about Sophie who is an Awesome advocate in that community. So without further ado, Jarvis, what do you think? Should we hit it into the show?
1: I say let's get into it.
0: Let's do it. Hey. Clean energy.
2: Clean.
0: Our guest today is Executive Director of the North Carolina Sustainable Energy Association. As one of the top clean energy leaders in the Southeast, he provides the strategic vision for transforming our energy system and economy through both public policy and market solutions. NCSEA was the lead nonprofit advocate for the policies that enabled North Carolina to become the number two state in installed solar and setting record increases in rooftop solar installations across North Carolina in 2018 and 2019. Our guest today is an original lab team member of the Rocky Mountain Institute's National Electricity Innovations Laboratory founder of the North Carolina Clean Energy Business Alliance, served on the Three Zeros Advisory Board at UNC Chapel Hill, and is on the Board of Directors of Earthshare NC. From 2006 to 2010, he co-led the creation and implementation of the North Carolina Renewable Energy and Efficiency Portfolio Standard and served two terms on the North Carolina Legislative Commission on Global Climate Change. Prior to his 15 years advancing sustainable energy, our guest ensured U.S. and military oil pipelines had adequate worst-case scenario emergency response plans. He also worked for five years on conflict resolution over water resources in the Mideast and North Africa. A graduate of Leadership NC and an Eagle Scout, he has most recently been recognized by the Charlotte Business Journal as a 2015 Energy Leader for North Carolina by the North Carolina Business Council in 2017 for his visionary leadership in climate and energy and was named Autobahn North Carolina's 2019 Clean Energy Champion. He holds a Master of Public Policy and a Master of Environmental Management from Duke University. Friends of the pod, let's give a squeaky clean welcome to today's very special guest and NCSEA's fearless leader, Ivan Erlob. Ivan, welcome to the pod.
2: Great to be here, Ben.
0: Yeah, we are really excited to have you. You know, it's so great that you support the pod so much because I think you've seen its ability to educate people and bring people into the clean energy conversation that either are already part of it or are just being introduced to it. So thanks for your support, and we're super excited to have you.
2: It's really easy to support great ideas and people who are the right people to do them. So. You do a fantastic job with the squeaky clean and I hear about it everywhere I go all over the United States. Awesome. Well, let's jump into this conversation, Ivan. Can
0: you tell us a little bit about your background and how you got into clean energy?
2: When I was coming out of the Nicholas School and the Sanford Institute at Duke University, I had a feeling for what I wanted to do and I knew that I wanted to get ahead of some of the most challenging conflicts that I felt like were ahead for America, uh, for our society, for the world. And one of those was certainly climate change. I had studied global change sciences at Duke University. I'd studied economic globalization over on the policy side. And I was in the first group of uh, students to go through their energy program. And looking at this region, Of the southeast Uh, as I later learned but had some indications while I was in grad school the southeast region was emitting a lot of greenhouse gases I was seeing information in school that it was really energy inefficient and I had this background and then building knowledge about climate change and how it shows up in our economy and our lives and definitely saw it leading to a path of a lot of conflict and unnecessary cost and um, thought I could make a real contribution here to sustainability if I could be a policy, public policy professional and bring forward solutions that weren't just trying to spend government dollars to get a little more of something like a few more solar panels or another energy efficient building, but really found a way to use policy to navigate solutions toward, uh, toward the market to make solutions that could prevent or or get ahead of these conflicts that i saw coming in the future and make them viable in our market we're so lucky to live in a capitalist republic Um, this form of democracy is vibrant and rich and rewarding but it also when solutions show up if we can make them work in the market then people will do them all day long in a cat in a capitalist republic and so uh, that was a great challenge. And I could have gone to California or New York where there was a bunch of people working on all this. But here...
0: Because you're from California, right?
2: Uh, born in Wisconsin, but I grew up in San Diego, California. And then went to school in D.C. and um, And came here to go to Duke. Uh, they, it has really. We, we won't
0: count that against you. All so. oh,
2: right, right. Well, my wife works at UNC, and uh, and our offices uh, were a storage closet inside the McKimmon Center on NC State's campus. Nice. When, well, we all, we know all when, about
0: storage closets. That's where Speed <laughs> Clean started. So yeah, uh, the uh, Pod Fort, uh, exactly. the famed Pod Fort. <laughs> yeah. Um,
2: from humble beginnings, yeah. Right. And so. Um, being here in the southeast i just looked around and really realized that i was sitting on a gold mine of opportunity because there were so few people working in the space I had lots of ideas a lot of um, unconventional ideas about not going to government as the first solution but going just utilizing government and policy as a tool to go to market as the solution and got to know the utility business model regulation policy how rates are made but also all the the wonderful people in the utility space, but especially um, getting to know our members and in the clean energy industry. And they were just leading edge every single day, taking risks and no promise of reward. Um, in a As I learned in a market environment that w- that was actually, had rules that were stacked against them being able to bring clean energy. And, and so, um, seeing some of that by, by meeting folks like pioneers like Richard Harkrader in Carolina Solar Energy while I was in grad school um, got me connected to NCSEA and to this opportunity and now that I've been in the job 15 years um, I've also been able to really lean on some of the other experiences I've had both in scouts and uh, you know always be prepared and, yeah, yeah. Um, and in international development and conflict resolution I learned um, the utility space and the electricity and just generally energy is very similar to what I was experiencing at the beginning of my career in the Middle East and North Africa supporting work there Um, is that people eventually recognize conflict starts uh, often through a chronic failure of communication. And over time, the lack of communication between people and institutions that should be communicating and should have mutual respect and engagement uh, starts to result in problems. But often people don't acknowledge those problems with sufficient priority and urgency and aren't willing to come to a table to take those take accountability responsibility for those problems and work together to solve them until they feel some kind of financial pain around those problems. I was explaining this to a presentation and great discussion I had with the North Carolina Association of Energy Engineers a few weeks ago. But someone asked me, what, you, how'd you get into this work? And, uh, and, and so I was explaining this background and what I saw around water. And it was, it was fascinating to see how many financial solutions were the right solutions and market solutions were the right solutions to these water conflicts. Um, because that's ultimately how people understand it, once it impacts their ability to to put food on the table, um, to have some kind of anticipation of employment and job security, um, to feel good about their role in society. Once all of that comes into jeopardy, then they come to a table. And I've seen the same thing in aspects of my work here for almost 15 years at NCSEA.
0: Wow. Well, thanks for that background. That's really interesting that, you know, how you got to clean energy and and your perspective, I think, is interesting. Kind of seeing a lot of the different stakeholders and how they interact with each other, I think, is really important. So the purpose of this episode, as you know, is to do a decade in review, which is a gargantuan task. I mean, <laughs> when we were originally talking about this, we could have probably done a solid 20 episodes on the last 10 years, but we're squeezing it into one episode so that all the listeners can get the highlights of the last 10 years. So we're going to jump in the time machine and revisit 2010. What was the status of clean energy in North Carolina at the beginning of this decade?
2: Well, at the beginning of this decade, um, we were just getting the opportunity to start to prove a lot of uh, assumptions and claims we had made in the 2000s. Uh, that transitioning uh, part of our energy mix uh, to being renewable energy and energy efficiency would cost less. We got a policy adopted in 2007, uh, the only REPS in the southeast that said... And what is an
0: REPS for our listeners who might be unfamiliar?
2: Yeah, renewable energy and energy efficiency portfolio standard. So essentially it takes two common policies out there in the U.S. at the time and and integrated them together, an energy efficiency requirement or standard and a renewable energy requirement or standard, and integrated them so that that we could have more competition on price and quality between firms. And if the utility wanted to do it all themselves, that was okay by the law. Um, But the law didn't then start to kick in until 2010. So that was the beginning of, hey, we said 2,000 jobs are going to be created as a result of this law. We're going to avoid spending half a billion dollars uh, versus what the utilities plans were at the time the law passed. And so we were embarking on this. I think there was enough solar to power 0.08% of homes in North Carolina, like was connected to the grid at the time. For for example, uh, Duke Energy and Progress Energy had almost uh, no energy efficiency. They had just recently minted a a well-negotiated agreement. With stakeholders um, to start to uh, start down a path to getting to one percent energy efficiency a year. Uh, previously, they had had no efficiency in their in their in their plans or their business model. Um, so there wasn't a lot going on in North Carolina. We ranked number nine in the U.S. at the time uh, for solar, but right in two thousand ten, we jumped. We uh, in two thousand seven, we were forty seventh in the U.S. In installed solar and by, by 2010 we had risen to number nine so that came very quick and that was with the very first early implementation when commercial and utility scale solar started to break through in 09 and 10 as a result of numerous policies um, that we had designed and put and worked with our legislature and some decisions at the utilities commission and to get in place uh, that added up to viability in this very closed, non-transparent um, monopoly market.
0: So the industry wasn't brand new, but it was in its infancy. Would you was that is that a fair characterization?
2: Yeah. So um, in 2008, I think the largest solar system on the grid, for example, was 75 kilowatts. Wow. Maybe 100 kilowatts.
0: Wow. I mean, Fifth Third Bank just started operations with their. 80-megawatt facility. Uh, it's the All Under Holloman site out there in Hertford County. And uh, actually, we, we, were, we were actually live there for an episode. And, uh, wow, it's, it's, it's really, really encouraging to see how far we've come.
2: Oh, yeah, now we have corporations all over um, the world, but also right here in North Carolina from small business to um, multinational firms bringing their commitments um, into action in their operations, uh, they're, they're putting uh, efficiency solutions in, uh, they're committing to renewable energy, they're contracting for, they're putting in EV charging stations, they're exploring microgrids. Um, it's, it's really phenomenal uh, to see that kind of corporate leadership that's happening.
0: At the beginning of this decade, North Carolina experienced a huge political shakeup in the General Assembly for the first time in over a century. Republicans held majorities in both the House and Senate and have maintained control in both chambers since then. So how did this shift in the political landscape affect clean energy, and how have we been able to work with Republicans to advance clean energy?
2: It was a real shock to a lot of people when the political wave of the 2010 election swept the nation, but also swept through here in North Carolina. I think a lot of people maybe thought there'd be some change, but didn't know what that change would look like. They didn't know what it meant. Fortunately, um, we have some great folks on our team, still on our team that were on our team back then, uh, like Julie Robinson and others who- Shout uh, out to you, Julie. There you go. Uh, Much appreciation for Julie. Um, We were having conversations. Um, Paul Quinlan who's with the wonderful consulting firm Scott Madden now was on our team back then, and we were looking at some polling data and we were talking about the landscape, and we said, we think there's going to be a big, big change here. And so what is really going to matter for us to be able to achieve our mission is to really hone in on market and economy and make sure we are evidence-based and legitimate about talking about and promoting clean energy on economy and market. And we, uh, about five months ahead of that election, went really hard at work Uh, to pull together everything we knew from kind of our clean energy industry census. We were the first state to measure the clean energy industry, its jobs, its revenues, starting back in 07, 08. So we had that information. We had some other market data and information we had been building for the Department of Commerce and others um, over the recent years. And uh, we put that together, and um, then the election results came in, and by the 2012 election, only eight of hundred of the 170 legislators that had, for example, voted either unanimously or near un- unanimously for that REPS policy I was just talking about, um, only eight of them were still in office. Wow. So the shock for us was that all of that effort we had put in in the 2000s to build this great in- shared institutional knowledge across decision makers and shareholders... Um, amongst decision makers and a lot of their staff just evaporated and we had to start from scratch. This political pendulum, we had largely been engaging a government that was almost all Democrat and really built their shared awareness and understanding and support for economically responsible clean energy. And now the pendulum has swung the other way and we have this whole new universe of people now on the other side of the political and philosophical spectrum uh, to start over with. So we almost had to hit a reboot, and all the anticipation and enthusiasm that people who were very involved in clean energy had was a real morale hit to them, but we couldn't afford to take a morale hit. Right. We had to immediately see silver linings, identify them, and be like, we're a, we're a nonprofit. We take the cards where they fall. We don't get involved in politics, but probably the most important thing here is that clean energy not be a political issue, that it, it not be politicized, because we know that it's good for all of us, and we've gotta find a way to get to genuinely a sustainable energy economy and systems.
0: And do you think that we were successful in depoliticizing clean energy?
2: Oh yeah, um, absolutely. I mean, it's, uh, it has been wonderful to go through um, this um, dialogue and shared learning experience uh, with Republicans and Democrats over this decade. It is just really the, the proof has come to bear in town after town and county after county across North Carolina. We have renewable energy and energy efficiency in every single county, every single state district, every single congressional district. It's everywhere. But being able to really talk about what it means for people, like people at work in communities, growing the tax base, having fewer air emissions, cleaner water, but also having jobs, (laughs) good paying jobs, and especially seeing all of this investment, just I think over 20, now 21 billion dollars of economic impact. Um, in uh, especially tier one and tier two counties so those are the more economically uh, um, tier one and tier two counties uh, face less economic opportunity and more economic challenges um, than maybe your major metro areas see and that's where most of the clean energy happened this decade and so being able to get out there on the ground at manufacturing sites, at solar systems, uh, in efficient schools and buildings with decision makers and letting them firsthand see what it is, hear kind of what kind of benefits came to the local economy, meet people who do the jobs that are their constituents, just made a world of difference to really personalize. like. This isn't a political football. I can't let this be a political football because this is bread and butter to my people in my my district, in my community. And so I'm at least going to give it some respect to talk about it and seriously consider it as a policymaker or a local government official. And that's all we could ask, and that that really depoliticized it.
0: So you're touching on it, but... One of the reasons that I think clean energy was able to be depoliticized is because of the jobs that it brought and because of the real people's lives that were affected by this and and bringing more and more people into the clean energy industry. So let's talk a little bit about jobs. How did the clean energy job market change in this decade? Because the clean energy industry supported around 12,000 jobs in 2010 and our NCSEA 2018 census reported around 43,000 jobs. So what marked that uptick?
2: There's a few major market dynamics going on here, Um, but those market dynamics of like the falling cost of technology, the improving efficiency and performance of clean energy technologies like uh, solar and batteries and ways to to avoid using energy or use less and get the same value, Um, electric vehicles, uh, ge- geothermal ground source heat pumps, all of those technologies that have been deployed so significantly across North Carolina uh, over this decade. If we're not for the policies and regulatory decisions made in our, in our state, um, those jobs would have gone somewhere else. Uh, industry grew here. We have genuinely homegrown clean energy industry in North Carolina. Um, because we adopted policies in the 2000s and then we held on to them in the, during the decade um, so that it was clear to entrepreneurs that if they showed up with good intention and tried to compete on price and quality that, they could st- that North Carolina is open for business and they, they would be able to have a shot at success here in our market.
0: We can't really have a Decade in Review episode about energy without talking about the non-clean energy resources, and I'm talking specifically about natural gas and coal. So in 2010, natural gas represented just over 4% of North Carolina's fuel mix. Now, natural gas provides about 32% of the state's electricity. Coal in 2010 was at 55%, now it's down to about 24% clean energy sources went from around 6% to around 12%. So what explains all of this, Ivan?
2: Yeah, sure. So at the beginning of this decade, there was this big national conversation about, oh, we can't have renewable energy. Uh, Energy efficiency was often just ignored or overlooked um, nationally in many places. But also, we had just gotten those decisions I was mentioning earlier at the Utilities Commission that negotiated between parties and the utility to have the save the watt save a watt program from Duke Energy and Save the Watts from Progress to uh, set a target of one percent a year efficiency and, and work toward it. But you're talking about the whole system. So one percent a year, right, still there's only gonna be a sliver of the total need for electricity in the state. So what was going on is there was this national discussion that natural gas was going to be this bridge. Like while the cost and was coming down and the performance improving and the, kind of the know-how of everyone on on how to integrate and use and rely on these very reliable resources of renewables and efficiency and you know putting smart software on it and all of that um, so it was a very comfortable decision to make and it was um, very op- opportune for natural gas at the time because the fracking boom had just really taken off in '08. So the, pr- the price floor fell out uh, from under natural gas and it dropped down to like $2 per mmbtu, BTU and uh, was staying there. And it was just in 07 that natural gas had whipsawed from like $3 to $13 and back down. And so when the question of replacing these really old coal plants uh, was coming up and people were saying we need to be cleaner, it was really easy for people to just say, well, natural gas is the bridge. Let's just take down coal and, and put natural gas in its place. And that's why you see the percentage of coal drop dramatically and the percentage of natural gas increased dramatically. It went from something we used every once in a while on really hot days or really, really cold days to something we use all the time. Uh, meanwhile, something else happened that no one anticipated, which is the price of renewables, especially solar power, and to a lesser extent wind power dropped, just dropped period. Uh, Studies in North Carolina that everyone signed off on in the mid-2000s said it wasn't going to drop at all, like solar would just stay the same cost. Well it dropped so fast it actually dropped further than natural gas. And the cost of nuclear went up at that time, the cost of coal was going up, and then also a lot of discussion around carbon and other emissions was really just, with natural gas then beating uh, coal on price, uh, coal's days were over. And a lot of us knew that then, and everyone else has kind of really come to just now accept that here at the end of the decade, coal's done. Natural gas came in for a lot of it, but what's really remarkable is here at the end of the decade, we can look back and say we actually did realize from the policies we adopted in the 2000s and held on to in the 2010s and and improved in some ways, we not only realized that half billion dollars of money that we didn't have to charge Duke Energy's customers, but even more than that. And with policies adopted in in, uh, 2017, 2018, 2019, Um, we've seen even more cost-effective renewables come online in North Carolina.
0: So, Ivan, I Uh, I didn't clear this with you ahead of time, so I'm going to throw you a curveball here. I want you to finish this sentence, okay? The most significant single development in the past decade that helped advance clean energy was... Politics. There you go. You did it. One word. I mean, I was expecting at least a phrase, one word, politics did it. Yeah, explain that a little bit. It was
2: hard. Uh, There was a lot of um, interest in natural gas fracking in the first half of the decade. Uh, There were those in um, positions of authority who thought there might be a big economic opportunity to the state if we just made some rules and, you know, set some goals around fracking, but none of that materialized. And by 2014, it became pretty clear that there was no uh, political win for the economy and energy and jobs in fracking in North Carolina. And actually, it was probably going to be a goose egg uh, because no fracking has happened um, even since then. Some decided to kind of turn their political energies and resources toward uh, trying to repeal all of North Carolina's clean energy laws, and um, they and a few folks and those who were here in that day uh, know who I'm talking about. <laughs> um, no need to name names. It's a stay focused on on the results, right? <laughs> and and yeah. the good outcomes and how we're better off for it. The silver lining. So um, there was a full, intense attack to repeal all clean energy policies. And uh, there were those in um, the legislature, who some who saw a lot of opportunity politically if they were to succeed. And we came um, a few times down to the wire of hours or minutes of votes um, that would have done just that. But the thing, the saving grace, um, was what I had mentioned earlier about getting legislators with, we had no interest in political affiliation. We're interested in the public interest in North Carolina's future and having a sustain like good quality of life, competitive economy, you know, sustainable energy systems, sustainable energy economy. All comers, come out, come come see a solar farm, come see a manufacturing facility, um, you know learn about it, see how see how it benefits your community and how it could benefit your community. And because we did that for over four years, pretty intensively, Um, and we're open to just have any conversations anytime with anyone, introduce them to people that can answer their questions. Enough legislators learned enough and became interested and supportive enough that they actually flipped from coming into office in the 2010 and 2012 elections, thinking that clean energy was bad and that they shouldn't support it to realizing that it had a lot of promise, if not already benefit uh, for the people they represented. And so we had just enough bipartisan support to stand up to those attacks and stem the tide long enough that we went through a grueling legislative session that year where we had to throw as much as we could of our time and attention and resources many long nights at working together with people across the spectrum of our society and economy and legislators and and others in government to stop this, this bad outcome from happening. And when we ran through that gauntlet, the, the fire of that gauntlet and the attacks just gave such urgency and priority to clean energy that it focused people's attention on it long enough to, to ask the question and answer it for themselves to have those critical conversations with themselves and others. What does clean energy mean to me? What does it mean to the people I represent? What does it mean to North Carolina's future and enough people from all areas of the political spectrum, came to a conclusion that it's, it's good for us. And it's good for us for m- multiple reasons that um, do not present political risk to me, like for decision makers. And so they stood up for it. And after that, after 2015, I mean, NCSEA was almost decimated. It wore us to the bone. We ran a half million dollar deficit as a nonprofit. It was an ugly year. It was a tough year and we were wiped out and we had to get up the next day and come back and just stay positive and find that silver lining and build from there. But the blessing was, is that we had genuinely depoliticized the issue and made it about economy and quality of life and like a, a competitive North Carolina globally for the future. And enough people got that and enough people understood what it meant materially in their lives, um, that it gave us something to build with together. And now in 2019, that was the central question. A lot of people think there was a lot of conflict around um, just kind of Duke Energy and their financial interests. But this was really a conversation about, and I think Duke acknowledged this, that we've got to reform the whole way we regulate electricity and think about energy in our economy and our systems. And so that conversation would not have been possible to come to a head in 2019 if we had not run through the gauntlet together uh, with these attacks and overcoming these attacks in 2015. So, as terrible as that was, and as much as it strained all relationships on the landscape, um, we're better for it.
0: Well, the 2010s, would you call it a success for clean energy?
2: Yeah, and and I, I didn't expect to kind of have a theme about politics, but... I mean, I guess I do have a policy background and and politics of the policy process is something I'm grateful to Duke University for training me in and having that experience in international development to be able to operationalize it. But bringing it to this job in this decade, we have successfully, I I am utterly optimistic and confident at the end of this decade that we can come together and solve our remaining kind of foundational challenges with energy. We just had the political pendulum swing from entirely one party in our state and we advance clean energy to now entire it points entirely the other party and we advance clean energy to I don't know what's ahead, but it's probably going to be something in between those two extremes politically. And, and we did it together in both instances. I don't see any reason why we can't do it together now going forward. And, and now we're really getting to the kernel of uh understanding and challenges and opportunity so um this is a good place to end the decade and i'm grateful for it um it wasn't what i expected maybe at times not what i signed up for um and i could probably say that about everyone who's worked here at ncsa yeah
0: um
2: man we've done it like and we and we and we only did it together
0: well it's a good place to end the decade and it's a good place to end the episode this was a great review Ivan, thanks so much for joining us. Happy December 31st, New Year's Eve to everyone. We'll be back with you tomorrow on New Year's Day to give you a little bit of insight on what the 2020s might look like. We might even talk about 2050. Is that even a real year? We'll see if we can even make it there. But if we do, clean energy is definitely going to be part of that conversation. So... Ivan, thanks so much for being on the show.
2: Thank you, Ben.
1: And there you have it, folks, the 18th episode of
0: the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast. Bring in the latest in clean energy right to your ears.
1: I mean, wow, Ben, it really seems like Ivan is a living legend. He really has been on the clean energy grind from the beginning
0: on that grind yes you know he's got that institutional knowledge he's one of the few people that can speak authoritatively on the history of north carolina's clean energy landscape so if you're gonna do an episode on the decade in review in terms of clean energy i feel like ivan's the perfect person so really glad we got him on the show for this one
1: i don't think i could agree anymore but uh ben what do you think your key takeaway for this episode is
0: So Jarvis, I think my key takeaway is that our industry made it through quite a bit of adversity, and I think that's a lesson that listeners in other states can take away and really resonate with. You know, as we battled against all the attacks on clean energy, I feel like they actually somehow propelled the industry forward and made it even stronger. I haven't talked about the silver lining, and I really want to flag that for listeners. You hear about it a lot. It's almost cliched, but it's really not. Look for that silver lining, even when the clean energy future seems a long way off, because we're all doing this together, and we need that, that grind, that incremental change to really achieve this clean energy future. So with that, Jarvis, what is your key takeaway? One
1: word, politics. I think that it's clear that since we're able to depoliticize clean energy, we were able to work with all lawmakers and stakeholders in order to advance clean energy. I also believe that regardless of how the political landscape changes in this upcoming decade, I think that we'll have a much easier time given that we've already worked so hard in order to keep the focus of clean energy on jobs, investment, and economic development.
0: Yes, that is indeed key. Thanks, everyone, for listening. This is part one of a two-part episode package. It's a holiday gift for all of you. And part two is going to also be us in the time machine. But this time, we're not going backwards. No, we're going forwards. We're going forwards in time. We're going to make predictions about the future of clean energy in North Carolina. We're going to do it with Ivan Erlob, again, the executive director of the North Carolina Sustainable Energy Association. And, And it's another awesome awesome episode so stay tuned for that one thanks again for listening and have a happy new year's happy new year's everyone